Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gist. Uh, you listen to the Gist of Freedom. Tonight we have on Professor Paul Ortiz. Professor, are you on the line? Oh, yes, Leslie, I'm, I'm here. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Great. This is your second time uh, talking with us, lecturing with Mr. Freedom Audience, is it? Yes, I am a, a big fan of the program. Um, you had me on um, a couple of years ago to talk about African-American history in Florida, and so any time I can uh, be of service, uh, I just I'd love to love the program. Wonderful. So I called you because you were sending out a blast uh, promoting an event. Do you want to start off with this, to discuss the event that you're promoting? Yes, there's there's an event um, at the University of Florida, uh, which is going to start here in Gainesville, but then is going to do some traveling. Uh, we have a, a program, a play, that's titled Gator Tales, which is based on oral history interviews conducted by the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. And these are oral histories with African-American elders who have been uh, struggling and, and fighting to democratize, to integrate, to um, really to bring freedom and, and inclusivity to the University of Florida. Uh, these are individuals, um, black elders, who uh, started enrolling in courses uh, at the University of Florida in the early 1960s, and we, we've been doing taking their oral history interviews for the past several years, and the University of Florida Theater and Arts Program, uh, under Kevin Marshall's leadership, decided to do a play uh, based on these oral histories. And so... That play is going to be running uh, in mid-February, from February 13th through 22nd. And so uh, any of your listeners who are Floridians or are, are fairly near Gainesville, um, I highly encourage them to, to check that out. And then if folks are in Edinburgh, Scotland this summer, the play is actually traveling there. There's a tremendous uh, interest, Leslie, in African-American history in Europe. Um, I was just in Europe this past summer, and people are really hungry for uh, black history, you know, figures like Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks are revered uh, in places like Ireland, Wales, uh, France, and so they are bringing uh, the stories of African-American freedom fighters uh, from Florida out to, to Europe this summer. Is it true that Muhammad Ali uh, visited Ireland and embraced his, um, his lineage as far as the Clay family? Are you familiar with that story? Muhammad Ali, I mean, a, a lot of African-American athletes, you know, Shaquille O'Neal uh, and others, but Ali in particular is interesting because 
uh, he was one of the many African-American political activists who made a connection at a certain point between the Irish struggle for freedom uh, from the English and the African-American struggle for freedom and talked about it. You know, you mentioned Ali being really critical and him being in a line of of African-Americans who traveled to Ireland, who traveled to Europe, uh, like Frederick Douglass, like Ida B. Wells Barnett, who made these connections between struggles against oppression, uh, both in Europe but also in the United States. And so, yes, that that was... um, In fact, I was with my wife in Belfast, Northern Ireland, this past summer, Leslie, and we saw a lot of murals in working-class Belfast which paid homage to people like Muhammad Ali, uh, Paul Robeson, uh, you know, again, people like Sojourner Truth. I mean, these are murals that Irish working-class people have painted, beautiful, you know, know, 10, 12 feet, you know, high murals, um, with a particular emphasis both on black history, uh, but also uh, Latin American history as well. A lot of the, the Latin American freedom fighters, people like Archbishop Romero, who was assassinated. Uh, I know many of your listeners are familiar with that story. He recently uh, is in the process of being canonized uh, by the Catholic Church, but he was a person seen as a champion of the oppressed. And so he has a mural, uh, which is very close to the mural honoring Paul Robeson, you know, the black freedom fighter. And so going to Europe this summer was an interesting reminder that black history is really international history. Wow. And I'm happy to tell you, we have Natasha on the line. Natasha, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. So I'm going to allow Tasha to take over, and I thank you so much, and I'll be listening. Thank you, Liz. Always wonderful talking with you. Happy Black History Month. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Oh, wonderful, Natasha. How are you doing? I'm very good. Oh, good. Um, So I was just wondering if you could just, Give us a little bit, give our listeners a little bit of your background. And I know you're a professor, right? And um, what your specialty is. And just uh, um, just let us, you know, let the listeners know um, what your, um, you know, your, you know, a little bit about you. So that oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. Thank you, Natasha. The um, I'm actually, I, I am a, a history professor at the University of Florida, and I also direct the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. We're a major oral history research center uh, based at UF. My background in history and how I got into into this, I think um, I did do my history PhD at Duke University in the 90s. My uh, former uh, dissertation advisor was Bill Chafe, wonderful mentor. Um, I had the great honor and privilege of meeting people like John Hope Franklin, who was such a legend, such an amazing person. Um, and then in addition, it's interesting, my introduction to this this type of history, though, was not really in the academy, uh, was not in college. It was working as a labor activist for the United Farm Workers of Washington State in the late 80s and early 90s. And as a labor activist in the United Farm Workers, you know, I learned about the history, the, the histories of struggle of the UFW, of Ceso Chavez, Dolores Huerta. That's how I got into to, actually into black history. Because then I learned about black movement organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And I learned about these organizations not because they were 
you know, not not because you know anyone assigned me to read a book about them, but because as an organizer, as organizers in these struggles to unionize, um, to help farm workers unionize, we had to learn, you know, our histories of, of of organizing, of social movement building, and so that's how I learned about people like Paul Robeson. You know, that's how I learned about people like W. E. B. Du Bois was through being an activist. And so when I came to the university or went to, to Duke as a, as a graduate student, um, you know, I took courses in African-American history. Um, I started teaching in Latino history. Um, but then in a certain what happened in North Carolina was when I was there, there was a large movement of immigrant workers from Latin America, particularly Central America, uh, into North Carolina. And I had a lot of students who were activists, community organizers, and they said, look, you teach one semester course on Latino history, and the next semester you teach one on black history. Why do you combine them? Because, mm-hmm. the pro- you know, the problems that people are facing today are, are connected. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. And um, also you've authored um, the Emancipa- Emancipation Betrayed, the Hidden History of Black Organizing and White Violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the Bloody Election of 1920, and you're the co-author of Remembering Jim Crow, African Americans, How About Life in the Jim Crow South. Um, And are you working on any other publications? Yes, I'm working on two books right now, Natasha, and one of them is for Beacon Press, um, and it's a title, right now the book is, is titled Our Separate Struggles Are Really One, African-American and Latino histories, and it's part of the Revisioning American History series that Beacon is publishing. I feel so honored because it's such a tremendous group of titles. The last book that came out in the Revisioning America series is uh, was um, uh, actually uh, Roxanne Dunbar, Dunbar or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Dunbar Ortiz's work on indigenous uh, American histories, uh, Native American histories. So. Um, but our separate struggles are really one tells the story of inner inner overlapping uh, freedom struggles that African Americans and Latinos have waged in this country for the past three centuries. And the other book I'm working on is with dissertation advisor William Chafe, uh, and that book is called Behind the Veil, and that is a, a kind of a synthesis of the history of the Jim Crow South from roughly the end of Reconstruction to the coming of the modern civil rights movement. And that book, Behind the Veil, tries to tell the story of the Jim Crow era from the perspective of African Americans. We rely heavily on oral testimonies. And the narrative we're trying to get across there is that black Southerners resisted the system of white supremacy and Jim Crow from the very beginning. And that resistance was continuous uh, you know there there were ebbs and flows, but there were there were there was never a moment where African Americans in the South collectively accepted the parameters and you know the the, the rule of Jim Crow of, of white supremacy. They always uh, found ways to try to fight back, and we're trying to tell a story that that says, hey, the South was not static. People were constantly on the move, trying to improve their lives for their 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 families, their children. Uh, and and it's, it really makes that Jim Crow era uh, much more interesting and really paves the way to understand how and why the modern civil rights movement started. It wasn't something that started from a president or from a leader. It was something that came organically from these generations of struggle in black southern communities. 
Would you consider um, combining the histories of Afro African Americans and Latinos a new discipline, something that really pretty much hasn't really been studied before, or there's really no department uh, for it as, that I'm aware of in, every, in any university? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. I, I would say yes and no. I mean, it's it, yes in the sense that for me, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I know I used to think of these histories as kind of running on sometimes parallel tracks, mm-hmm. you know, having a lot of similarities to each other. Um, within the context of ethnic studies, we, we often kind of do kind of um, a, a mix of, of these histories, we'll say, you know, if you take an intro to ethnic studies in a university, you might have a week of black studies, a week of, you know, Chicano studies, Asian studies, so on and so forth. Um, but what I'm trying to do here is something a little different. And right. I'm, I'm also trying to challenge the categories um, mm-hmm. of black and Latino because, I mean, for example, the course I'm teaching this semester, I'm teaching a research seminar at the University of Florida titled African American and Latino Histories. The first mm-hmm. book we start with, we spend three weeks with a wonderful book uh, titled Down These Mean Streets by uh, an author by the name of Piri Thomas. Now, Piri Thomas was a black man. He was also Puerto Rican. And Down These Mean Streets is a memoir of growing up in Spanish Harlem in the 1940s and 50s. And right away, he gets us thinking beyond these categories because he says, look, I had to learn in my life I'm not either black or or Latino. I'm not either black or Puerto Rican. I'm all of these things. Um, And it's a story about how he he comes to embrace the fact that he lives his life in these multiple categories that are profoundly, that were were kind of, you know, he inherited in some ways. He inherited this, this system of colonialism and oppression, which forced his family to move from Puerto Rico to Spanish Harlem in the 1930s during the Great Depression. I mean, it wasn't a choice, per se. It was simply a question of economic desperation because the U.S. had such an unequal trading relationship and such a level of exploitation with the island of Puerto Rico that so many Puerto Ricans had to move to New York and, and to Chicago and other places. So Perry Thomas, uh, Down These Mean Streets, you know, is, 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 a play, or is, is a memoir. And, and in fact, he, read it, he wrote it in prison, and in much of the book in prison, and so... When we talk about that in class, we, talk, we, we connect that to Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, the story of George Jackson, the Soledad brothers. You know, these are serious thinkers who are fighting oppression, and they're learning. They're kind of coming into their own inside of these, these carceral spaces. Uh, and so I would say, you know, again, you know, you, the, the question you asked is a very important one, and, and it's kind of a yes or no, a yes and no question for me because – on the one hand, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, when we think of Du Bois in the 10, 1910s and 20s, du, when he thought about freedom, he was always thinking about Latin America. He was always thinking about the Philippines. He was always thinking about Africa. If you asked him what emancipation meant, he never, ever limited it to the United States. He never, ever said, well, this is just about African Americans, because he, he understood the connections between you know, that, that colonialism and imperialism and white supremacy are global systems. And so in order to challenge those systems, you have to think globally. And you're not watering down your analysis when you include Latin America or Africa. You're actually strengthening your, your connective bonds. 
And this is why Malcolm X would would tell people in the, in in you know the years before he passed. Do you think that yeah uh, for students who are taking these courses, do you think that um, there would be some resistance for some students, particularly like let's say a Latino student who doesn't identify as being um, any having um, any black heritage? Is that is that a barrier to them mm-hmm. truly getting um, some? something out of the class, or do you think that, you know, they, some, someone who doesn't acknowledge that part of their own uh, heritage would still be able to come away with something significant by taking the class? Because yeah. you call it, I, I know your, your discipline is part of, partly called Afro-Latin, right? And not everybody who's Latin would identify with being Afro. Exactly. And one of the things we talk about, Natasha, in the class is that those of us like myself whose families trace their histories back to places like Mexico uh, or for others. In Florida, as you know, there's a very large uh, diaspora from what we used to call the Hispanic Caribbean uh, or countries like you know, uh, Cuba. Um, and so a lot of my students are from places like Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Tampa. And so those students, when they come into the classroom, we have these, the exact same discussion that you're pointing out. And people have, it's very interesting, there's mixed ideas, there's mixed thoughts. In Down These Mean Streets, when Perry Thomas is is beginning to realize that he has African ancestry, the first thing his, his family members tell him is, no, you have Indian ancestry. You don't, you know, we're not, you know, we, we don't have any connection to, to Africa, you know, to the African diaspora. And and yes, I have had students who are working their way through that issue because, as you know, within Latin America, there was a Spanish imperial uh, project, there was a Portuguese imperial project, and those projects involved, you know, very much the oppression, you know, slave plantations, the oppression of indigenous people, and a denial of the value and the importance of African culture. And so, up until recently in Latin America, it was not uncommon to hear people say, well, you know, in the Dominican Republic or Mexico or Argentina, we have no black histories, right? In recent years, that has changed. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm teaching the African-American Latino histories class is that one of the remarkable phenomena in recent years in countries like Brazil and countries like Mexico is to not just acknowledge but to embrace and promote and to talk about African heritage, African culture, the role of Haiti, for example, the role of the Haitian Revolution in making the Mexican War of Independence in 1810 possible, you know, making the liberation of Central America from Spanish rule possible. And so if you look at countries like Venezuela, Peru, uh, in, Mexico, in, in, in Mexico in the 1990s, the state declared that Africa was the third root of the nation, along with you know, the indigenous pre-Columbian histories and along with Europe, um, that Africa was an equally integral uh, part of the making of the Mexican nation. But again, these are fairly recent um, phenomena. So it gets back to your earlier question, you know, how new or old is this? On the one hand, we can find a lot of major African-American thinkers um, and thinkers from Latin America who acknowledged these connections, these ties, right? But I feel like sometime during the 20th century, we kind of lost track of this, uh, and so this is one of the reasons why I'm working on this book now. I mean, 
Um, I think it goes back even further, possibly, to the 19th century, right? Could you tell us how and why did African-Americans in the 1800s see the emancipation of their counterparts in the Caribbean and Latin America to be so important? important? Yeah, it's a great question. They saw it as important because slavery was an America's wide system. It wasn't just something that existed in North America. It wasn't just something that existed in the U.S., the, the analysis that African Americans had of, of slavery in the early 19th century was that this was a global phenomenon. And in order to get a handle on it, in order to think about fighting it, one had to understand that slavery was not just something in Virginia or Texas. But first of all, you had to understand it. And this is an analysis that I've learned from reading African American newspapers, from reading closely people like Frederick Douglass, his analysis of slavery, uh, Henry Holland Garnett, uh, Bishop Henry Turner. These are major icons in, in black history in the 19th century, of course. And what they say is that slavery is this voracious, voraciously growing system. It either grows or it dies. It spreads, it starts up in, up in the, you know, Virginia, up in that area, and it ends up way down in Texas. But then in the 1840s and 1850s, you have... Uh, southern, uh, not just southern plantation owners, but you have people on Wall Street and banks saying, hey, we need to go in and take over Mexico. We need to go in and take over Cuba because there are many white American slave owners who have big plantations in Cuba. Uh, you have many slave owners who say, hey, we want to reimpose slavery into Mexico. There's a lot of fertile land opportunities down there. And so that when Mexico abolished slavery in the 1820s, it became public enemy number one, because now Mexico becomes a haven, a place of freedom and sanctuary. And in recent years, Natasha, we've discovered that the, when we talk about the Underground Railroad, Americans often immediately, you know, what do we think of? We think of, you know, Detroit, we think of Boston, New York, and then ultimately the North Star, Canada. But what we've discovered in recent years and the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program has done some oral histories along these lines, is that the Underground Railroad south to places like Mexico, Latin America, the Bahamas, after the British abolished slavery, African Americans perhaps use that Underground Railroad south as often as they did the Railroad north. It's just that we don't have yet that kind of documentation because we have many slave owners, uh, particularly in Texas and Louisiana, who lament constantly we're losing our enslaved people. They're running to, to Mexico to get sanctuary from slavery. And so in the 19th century, slavery was seen very much as an international system. And, and African-American thinkers like Douglas frequently pointed out, you know, why are, the, why, are America, why are white Americans constantly going to Central America trying to reimpose slavery? And that's how people began making those connections between the liberation of people in Latin America, you know, and the liberation of people in the U.S., and how mutually um, uh, dependent we were in, in the two different uh, parts of the world. You, you just mentioned the 1820s, and what about in 1865? Why do you think that African-Americans didn't feel that the uh, general emancipation didn't end slavery? Well, it was, 1865 was a remarkable moment, right? Because it, you know it's the end of this bloody civil war. Uh, there's a, the, the the suffering in black communities, uh, South and North, uh, the high loss of uh, people from you know who died in the war. Very traumatic period. But even then, at that point, 
you had leaders of abolitionist organizations, you know, people like Henry Helen Garnett, people like uh, Bishop Turner, who said, not so fast. We may have uh, an emancipation here. Uh, we don't know what it's going to lead to. We don't even know if it's going to lead to the end of the slavery in the U.S., but we certainly know that slavery has not ended in Brazil. It has not ended in Cuba. And as long as th that slavery continues to exist in Cuba, we're, our freedom is in jeopardy here. And in fact, in recent years, we've discovered that you know, slavery didn't end all at once. And one of, the, one of the questions I pose to my students the first day of the class, whether I'm teaching the class I'm teaching now, or I'm teaching African-American history, or I'm just teaching American history, is I ask the students, what year did slavery end? And almost always, they, they're very proud, they know the year, and they say 1865. And I say, we're going to spend the rest of the semester studying why that's the wrong answer. Because slavery continues in the United States through convict labor, through the chain gang, through, through debt peonage. Um, but it also continues in places like Cuba. And remember how close Cuba is to the United States. And we have documentation that proves that American slave owners, even after slavery ended here, would kidnap African Americans in, in places like Florida, in Texas, in New Orleans, and actually ship them to their plantations in Cuba and re-enslave them or sell them to other plantation owners. So, so in 1865, when a lot of people said, you know, now let's, let's dismantle our, our anti-slavery organizations, a lot of the really far-sighted black leadership said no, not too quickly, you know, uh, because we still have another front in the war against slavery uh, in Latin America to, to fight out. So in the 1870s, there was the Cuban Solidarity Movement, and how do you view um, U.S. relations with Cuba today, considering, you know, the recent announcements that the White House has made in terms of, you know, um, relations, and, and people are wondering, you know, there's no longer going to be an embargo and people will be able to travel to Cuba. Do you, do you have any insight on that? Wow, that's a wonderful question. I mean, the Cuban Solidarity Movement of the 1870s was a movement that African-Americans built nationally to petition the government, the, the, the administration of Ulysses S. Grant to grant non-belligerency status to the Cuban, the Cuban freedom fighters. Um, these were African descent and Creole or white Cubans who were fighting against Spain, trying to get independence from the Spanish Empire in Cuba. And when African Americans joined that struggle to try to get support for that struggle against imperialism in Cuba, they used churches, you know, they used labor organizations, they, you know, the best, the best, most popular leaders of that time, you know, gave stump speeches, they, they, they spoke at, at the oldest, most honored, you know, venerated churches in, uh, among black communities in the country. And the connection I think you can make there is that these were, were people who themselves had just been liberated, uh, had just liberated themselves from slavery. So when they look to Cuba, they're trying to imagine a similar kind of process happening in that country. And it's a much different vision of understanding people in Cuba than the government, than the U.S. government had in the 1870s. And I think the connection you can make now, Natasha, is that the U.S. government has a certain way of, of viewing Cuba, and the U.S. government has obviously imposed an embargo uh, upon the Cuban nation for many, many years. 
But at the same time, we know that there were many African Americans, you know, people like Malcolm X, for example, who didn't see Cuba as the enemy. And, and Malcolm talked about the connections between the struggles of, of black Americans in the 60s and the, and the Cuban Revolution. We know we have people like Mary Baraka. Amiri Baraka spent a significant amount of time in Cuba, uh, both when he was in the military, by the way, in the Air Force, before the revolution, and then after, after the, the Cuban Revolution, he visited uh, Cuba as well, and he wrote extensively about his experiences there. So at, in, in terms of African-American, in terms of black history, Cuba uh, has always loomed large. Robert, uh, Robert Williams, for example, when Robert Williams fled the United States, when he was under threat by the U.S. government and the Ku Klux Klan, where did he go? He went to Cuba. And so uh, you talk about Asada Shakur is in Cuba now. Uh, Angela Davis has recently talked about uh, the situation with the U.S. government trying to get Asada back, putting her on the FBI 10 most wanted list. So African Americans have always um, had a different viewpoint uh, collectively about Cuba then the U.S. government, and those viewpoints are frequently at odds with each other. And I think that if we're going to think about this new relationship between the U.S. and Cuba, black history is the first place to start. How, how is it, you know, you know, what did Malcolm say about the ways in which Cubans, or which, which African Americans should interact with Cubans? Because I'm uncomfortable with the notion that we should allow the U.S. government to tell us how to interact with Cubans, I'm uncomfortable with the notion that we're going to let, you know, kind of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce tell us how we're going to interact with Cubans because, frankly, we have not earned that kind of trust, um, mm-hmm. you know, over the past half century with, with this embargo. But, again, I think looking at black history, you know, using black history as a way to, to pose the question the way you're doing uh, about the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba is very important because, frankly, from a black history perspective, African Americans have always continued their relationships uh, with the people of Cuba, regardless of what the U.S. government, uh, regardless of what J. Edgar Hoover, regardless about what Richard Nixon uh, felt. Okay. Well, um, yeah, a couple of questions I want to ask you. Is, um, how does the how African Americans help organize a uh, movement? Towards the Cuba War of Liberation against the Spanish Empire, were they active in doing that at all? Yes, this was one of the things I, I'm just so excited about this to 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 kind of rediscover, and I'm still working on how because it's hard to organize a social movement, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to organize a movement in one town, much less one state. But somehow, African Americans did this really from the, the the end of the Civil War during Reconstruction, and this is a Reconstruction era movement. So what African Americans did was they mobilized the best, most trusted institutions they could. And at that point, we're talking about African American churches. And they used the churches as a forum to give talks about issues like the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. Natasha, the first place I discovered this movement occurring, you know, the Cuban Solidarity Movement of the 1870s, was at these 15th Amendment commemorations. Now, we know that in terms of black history, Emancipation Day has been very important, was especially important in the late 19th, early 20th centuries in black communities, right? 
So every community would have an Emancipation Day ceremony. We know about Juneteenth. Uh, in Florida, we had May 20th. That was the day that the Union Army liberated Tallahassee. But what, what we also maybe know less about is the fact that after the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitutions were pa- uh, Constitution was passed, black communities all throughout the country had 15th Amendment days where they commemorated the, the recent passage of an amendment which essentially empowered them with the right to vote. In other words, full citizenship. And what I discovered was, in the middle of these speeches, there would be a reference so often to the struggle in Cuba. And then the reference would be, would be, okay, let's talk about Cuba, but let's also, hey, I also have some petitions I want you to sign. And we're going to deliver these petitions to President Grant as soon as we possibly can. And so I just discovered that all across the country, in these commemorations, in these kind of cultural commemorations of both emancipation, uh, but also of the um, 50th Amendment days, um, and also in the South, when black Southerners who were very active in the Republican Party uh, in those early years of Reconstruction, when they would create their planks, their platforms, Uh, The Louisiana platform is a very good example. The Louisiana platform of the GOP in Reconstruction had a very explicit passage about supporting the liberation struggle of the Cuban people against the Spanish Empire. And so the, the movement even reaches into mainstream politics. And unfortunately what happens, and I don't, I don't want to be too much of a plot spoiler, but, um, business interests, wall street, you know, the, the same kind of, you know, the, 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 the folks in the 1% um, are always opposed to the Cuban solidarity movement organized by African Americans. The reason that the 1% are opposed, of course, is, hey, they have major investments in Cuba. They have a vested interest in keeping Cuba an unequal society. It matters less to them whether Spain runs it or the U.S. runs it. They just want the elite to continue to run these big, massive you know, tobacco, sugar plantations. And so the 1% are not down with the Cuban Solidarity Movement. That's a movement that African Americans create, you know, sustain, and end up delivering tens of thousands of signed petitions to the Grant administration during Reconstruction. And um, uh, Grant makes some noises about supporting the Cuban struggle, but then ultimately uh, defers to the business interests uh, in uh, in his cabinet, uh, but then African Americans kind of go back to the drawing board, and they they kind of reorganize. They they mobilize a new petition campaign. You see a lot of speeches uh, and and special events that occur that black organizers organize in, like the Cooper Union in New York, which is you know which is this iconic public meeting place, uh, Boston Common. Uh, Faneuil Hall, you know, play, you know, these iconic, you know, Mother Bethel in Philadelphia, which was the home, you know, the the, the birthplace of African Methodist Episcopal uh, of faith uh, in the United States. Mother Bethel becomes the site of major organizing done in support of the Solidarity Campaign in, uh, uh, on behalf of Cuba. So um, it's really a whirlwind of politics. And uh, Natasha, I mean, I, I tell my students, my students are always surprised. They say. Well, how could people have been so sophisticated back then? They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't know all these connections. And I say, hey, people back then were just as sophisticated in their notions of freedom and equality and justice as we are now. 
and maybe they knew maybe they knew some things back then that we don't know now. You know that that's one of the wonderful th- things about history, right? Um, for our young listeners, could you list some um, Afro Latin revolutionaries? And then I have another part to my question. Um, and could you name some people who have uh, seeked refuge or are using Cuba's safe haven? I know you mentioned uh, Asada Shakur, who's uh, a Black Panther, and as well as uh, Amiri Barak, who's been, has spent some time there, who's a poet, novelist, and playwright. Um, so, yes, yeah, for our listeners, if you could yeah. mention some, yeah, names. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, on my way to do that, I mean, you think, I mean, we could, you know, we could talk for hours. I mean, it's so amazing. Um, Langston Hughes. We know about the Negro Speaks of Rivers, his magnificent poem. Uh, he writes it on the way, on on a train on the way to Mexico to see his father, who's fluent in Spanish, who tells other African Americans in the early 20th century, Mexico is the future of the black race. You know, give up in the U.S., Mexico is the future. And even Langston encourages African Americans in the 20s to move to Mexico. We have, saw, we, we have these connections all around us that we're not even aware of. So, for example, uh, have you ever heard the song Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix? Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, tons. I mean, everyone, it's, it's one of the great songs in rock and roll history. But how many of us stop to think about at the heart of Hey Joe is a narrative that Hendrix is singing about going to Mexico to escape lynching. That is at the heart of that song. And we have many stories. The book I'm working on now in 1895, Thomas Harris, an African-American lawyer in Macon County, Alabama, is warned by the Ku Klux Klan not to practice law. They don't want black lawyers in Macon County. He defies them, tries to practice law. They shoot him, nearly lynch him. He flees. Where does he go? He goes from Alabama to Mexico. He finds sanctuary. He waits there several months. And then he returns later when, when things are safe, you know, they're safer. Um, and so these, these connections, uh, Natasha, are everywhere. Getting back to the core of your question, when we talk about a country like Mexico, we have to think of people like Vicente Guerrero, uh, we have to think of people like Jose uh, Morelos because these were people who were mixed African, indigenous, European descent uh, men who were essentially seen as kind of like the George Washingtons, you know, of Mexico. Uh, Vicente Guerrero was uh, as seen as Mexico's first black president. Uh, he is credited with abolishing slavery, uh, and again helping to create a situation where Mexico becomes a sanctuary for African Americans fleeing slavery from from Texas. And this is one of the reasons this is one of the reasons we that we fought the Mex the so called Mexican American War was to try to shut down that border. It wasn't about manifest destiny. It was about slavery, pure and simple. And this is what Frederick Douglass taught taught us then. He said, stop talking about manifest destiny Stop talking about what's in the headlines. I'm going to tell you what, what's really what, what, what the Mexican-American War is about. It's about about the U.S. trying to spread slavery into Mexico, but also trying to shut down the border so that African Americans uh, uh, will, will stop seeing Mexico as a place of sanctuary. But African Americans didn't just see black um, Latin Americans as heroes. They they would look to people like say Simon Bolivar, who was known in Latin in Latin American context 
we know of Bolivar as kind of the, um, uh, we refer to him as the great emancipator. And, but he only became the great emancipator uh, after, or, you know, after he goes to, to Haiti uh, in 1816, after the Spanish have defeated him time and time again, uh, and he goes to the Haitians. He goes to the, to the south of the country, and he, you know, they're com- the Haitian people are commiserating with him, and they're saying basically, it, it, we don't have the transcripts of these discussions. We can only guess, but we do know the outcome. Um, the outcome is that Haiti supplies Simon Bolivar with troops, with supplies. Uh, even with some money. Now, they don't. there's not much money in Haiti in 1816 because they are suffering under a terrible embargo, uh, a, strangle, a strangling embargo that's levied against them by the French, by the British, by the Americans, because Haiti is seen as a beacon of liberty, a beacon of freedom for oppressed people. It's the place you can go to to, to wage a freedom struggle. And in fact, in Venezuela, a lot of people know today that the first time their flag was ever raised uh, was not in Venezuela proper, but actually in Jacques Malbay in Haiti, because a lot of the Venezuelan freedom fighters, when they fled from Venezuela um, to escape the Spanish temporarily, they found sanctuary in Haiti. And so uh, that this is one of the reasons why um, Bolivar is actually so broadly, um, you know, kind of uh, celebrated among African Americans in the 19th century because they they credit him and and they see him Natasha in a way this is interesting they see him similar to the way they see Abraham Lincoln uh similar to the way they see the white Cuban resistance fighters and what what they'll frequently say you know what people like Douglas or Turner will say is these were men who initially thought that they could get free that they could get their freedom uh, and yet keep slavery in place. And events prove to them how wrong they were. I mean, think if you think about the American Civil War, there's a lot of similarities between the, the, the Civil War in the U.S. and the Latin American Independence Wars, because there you have, in both cases, you have elite white people who initiate hostilities and try to keep systems of bondage in place, but then realize after a year or two or more years, that in order to save their nations, in order to save their 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 war, their 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 own you know emancipation, is going to be bound up in the question of the emancipation of black people, uh, and in Latin America, black people, and also of indigenous people, you know, all across the hemisphere. So. Um, you know, there's a similar kind of trajectory, in the course, in the U.S. in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln tries to keep slavery, uh, and then Douglas and others are saying, hey, you can't do that. You know, you can't fight the Civil War with one hand tied behind your back. Um, I have a question for you. How do you think uh, African Americans defined freedom in the 19th century, and, and what does that uh, tell us about today, or what lessons does it hold for us today? Yeah, I think it holds a lot of lessons for for all of us because the the ways in which African Americans define freedom in the 19th century, they define freedom on a number of different levels. One, on the most immediate level, freedom was about being able to to have a family, to be united with your family. And one of the first things 
that African Americans do after the the you know after 1865 is to try to reunite with family members sold from them, separated from them, brutally separated from them. And so African Americans define freedom as, and, and on one hand, a very immediate basis, the right to have family, the right to have effective, loving, mutually supportive bonds, both among the immediate family members but also in the community. They also define freedom um, as as having right the right to land, having access to land, uh, you know, and so land and freedom. Again, there is a tremendous connection between you know, the African American conception of freedom. Always has land at the bottom of it in the 19th century, uh, and in the 20th century for that matter. And if you look at the Mexican Revolution, that's the cry of the revolution: is land and freedom. Uh, this notion again that you can't have freedom in a capitalist society unless you have some level of resources. And then connected to that is this conception, is this idea among African-American leaders, and again I'm thinking of someone like Henry Highland Garnett or even Ida B. Wells Barnett who spends a lot of time in Europe thinking about how are we going to fight these global systems of, of white supremacy because you know, white supremacy um, and capitalism are not just U.S., Event, inventions. They're not, they don't just exist in the United States. Or it's someone like a Malcolm X saying to black audiences, stop thinking about yourselves as minorities. Stop thinking about us as minorities because we're only minorities if we limit our conception of blackness to the United States. But if we start combining our, our, our thoughts, our actions with black brothers and sisters in the global south and then combine those with Asian brothers and sisters in Southeast Asia, and also people in Latin America, suddenly we're no longer minorities. We are the majority of people. But we ha- again, we have, and, and, and this, to me, Natasha, this is, this is something, people like Malcolm, I mean, I'd studied Malcolm X and, and W.E. Du Bois for years, and, but until this most recent research, I didn't realize how their critiques and how their genius really came out of the community really came out of these age-old critiques of capitalism, these critiques of American imperialism. And, and so people like Du Bois and then Malcolm X were people who were, yes, they were geniuses, but at the same time, the, part of their genius was tapping into that venerable tradition of these black conceptions of freedom, of black, what some people call black internationalism, what I call in my forthcoming book, Emancipatory Internationalism, that notion that I can't have my freedom here unless you have your freedom there and wherever there is. And and again, when you think of a, a more recent freedom fighter like Martin Luther King Jr., you know, what he would frequently say is, hey, you know, where, where, wherever there's injustice, you know, ju- what, what do you say? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Um, and it's not just something that only African Americans have, have developed. Uh, it's something that's developed in other movements as well. But I think that it's center, it should be the centerpiece of Black History Month because um, it is very much a sophisticated notion of freedom and emancipation that has come out of the black freedom struggle. Great. Thank you so much. Um, is there any last thoughts you want to give to our listeners or any um, information like in terms of a website or where they can get your books? Mm-hmm. Well, I encourage people to to look at uh, look us up at the um, 
the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. You can, you know, they can Google that or they can Google UF Oral History. Um, and also, um, they can look at Beacon Press. I mean, I'm publishing my forthcoming book, um, our, our Separate Struggles Are Really One, African-American and Latino Histories is coming out on Beacon, and I have a piece that's going to be coming out on the Beacon blog, Beacon Press blog, uh, about a lot of the things that we've talked about um, this evening. Um, and I just encourage people to continue to place black history at the center you know, of, of, of how we think politically. I mean, I think, you know, last spring, a group of my students traveled to Cuba, and uh, this kind of coincided with my 50th birthday. And, you know, I said, wow, I wish I could go to Cuba with you. You know, I have to teach my seminars and everything. And so they came back with a special present for me on my 50th birthday, and it was a, a Spanish um, language edition of the autobiography of Malcolm X, which had been published in, in Havana. Awesome. Yeah, isn't that awesome? And in like 1970, yeah. 71. And it had this amazing preface. And the author, a uh, female Cuban intellectual, was trying to explain how the Cuban people had embraced the life and the work of Malcolm X and how even though most of them had never been to New York, had never been to Detroit, never, never been to the places that Malcolm described in the autobiography, they felt an instant affinity for this, as they called him back then, you know, the, this Negro brother who was trying to, to think of freedom in a much more expansive way. So I just encourage people to continue to, to make connections, you know, whether it's between African Americans or Latinos. We barely touched on, you know, you can make the connection to Native Americans. Um, a lot of African American families, people that I've done oral histories with, talk about connections to Native American history and the struggle against the oppression of indigenous people uh, being connected to the struggles of, of African Americans. So, you know, those those are just some things I, I think, um, you know, I'm going to continue to, to look into. You know, my the elders that I've been lucky enough to have a have as guides have kind of um, uh, directed me in those those uh, directions. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking this opportunity to speak with us and enlightening us um, about everything. And um, maybe we can have um, a show when your book comes out, talk about it, and um, raise some consciousness more. Oh, I'd love to, Natasha. And thank you. You know, you ask amazing questions. I'm a big fan of the show. I'll be listening next week. And, uh, I, I try to link. I, I frequently send out, you know, blurbs about the show to uh, my uh, Facebook community. So, just keep on doing the great work you're doing, and we'll just keep on struggling together. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Have a good evening. You too.